Uh, my name is Ken Jones. I'm one of the pastor elders here and, and part of the preaching team, and we welcome you, especially if you're visiting with us. Um, we're glad you can be with us. There will be some, uh, I'm going to speak, we're going to eventually later come to the table and uh, take communion together, and there will also be some, the thing you came for, announcements at the end of the meeting, so stick around for those too. Um, we're well into the story of the early church as recorded by Luke in the, ch and in the book of Acts. And we've been reading stories lately about the spread of the gospel and the growth of the non-Jewish church throughout what is now Turkey and Greece primarily, spearheaded by the Apostle Paul and his various companions. And through these men and women... The gospel of Jesus, the good news of the forgiveness of sin, the freedom, the deliverance from sin and death, and getting brand new life in Christ, that had changed the Mediterranean, some very significant cities in the Mediterranean the world, and it would eventually change the world. Well, the folks that are mentioned in these early accounts, uh, folks like Peter and James and John and Paul, uh, Jordan referred to them last week as the heroes of the faith, and they can seem kind of hard to live up to. Uh, it's not uncommon for Christians to be a little overawed by Paul and the other big guys and gals in the New Testament. I certainly have. Uh, you know, have you ever thought the question uh, or thought to yourself, I want to be like Paul, or I wish I were like Paul, or maybe, no, I am not Paul. I'm never going to be. Don't expect me to do that. <laughs> I don't know if you've had those thoughts. I've had all of those thoughts at one time or another, more, more than once uh, along the way. Um, but today, we are not going to be looking at Paul's gifts, his calling, his amazing accomplishments. We're going to be looking at something that was undergirding him through these stories that we're reading, especially in the last few weeks and the next couple um, but actually, all the stories we've been reading about all the work that he did going out, and that is peace, this shalom rest that marked Paul's life. This man, he wrote to us, he wrote to uh, the church in Corinth, five times, five times he got 40 lashes from the Jewish authorities. Three times he was beaten with rods, and once he was stoned, he experienced all kinds of things. Uh, we read a few weeks ago that he expected to face opposition everywhere that he went. He expected it. This is a man who, from what we read in the text, was apparently in Jerusalem the week that James was beheaded, Peter was thrown in prison, Peter was released. This is a man who knew the risks of doing what he was doing and, and really expected his life to ultimately end in sacrifice. Well, the story picks up in verse 12 in chapter 23. It finishes the story of Paul's time in Jerusalem, uh, this particular time. He had, been a Jew, he had been accused by the Jewish leaders uh, and arrested. These are the stories we've read in the last couple of weeks. He'd been arrested by the Romans for questioning. Claudius Lys Lysias, who's the Roman tribune in Jerusalem at the time, who's in charge of the, the Roman, the Jerusalem garrison of Rome, took Paul before the Jewish high court, which is the Sanhedrin, to hear the formal charges. And a big ruckus broke out uh, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two sects in the 
Jewish uh, leadership. When he yelled out, I am a Pharisee on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And that fired up this age-old argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they got into it. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And so Lysias, the tribune, took Paul back into protective custody. And at the end of that passage that Jordan covered last week, we read in verse 11 that the Lord came to Paul that night and said to him, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts of me in Jerusalem, you will do in Rome. Jordan talked to us last week about this courage in Christ that marked Paul's life. He ended by saying, look, just three little things. Remember, remember that Christ is in you to will to work. Start small and start with something you've been resisting. Well, Paul's entire demeanor was governed and undergird by this courage in Christ and his unwavering hope in the resurrection, the life after death. But today we're looking at, again, this compliment to the courage, to this hope, and we're looking at the peace, this shalom, the rest that marked Paul's life, even and perhaps especially mostly in times of great struggle and persecution. Now, this word doesn't show up in the text that we'll read today, peace or shalom. But as I noted, it is, you can read it throughout the stories and his letters. It's a big deal. So there's always a question I have when I think about talking about something like this. So what? What, what you know, if we talk about the, Paul, the peace in Paul's life, what, why do that? What's the point? How is it practical to us? Is it meaning, does it have an impact on my life and your life today? Well, as Jordan recounted last week, this simple message of the singular person and work of Jesus was anathema. It was absolutely, they hated it, the Jewish leader did, to the point of violent, violent opposition. If you and I live active lives within the world and the culture that we live in, and we faithfully and joyfully proclaim the good news of life in Jesus, we will continue to face similar opposition from time to time. If we actually are out there living it out loud, there will be pushback. That's just the way it is. I mean, the Lord told us that would be the way it would be. The claims of the gospel, especially that the name of Jesus is the only name by which men, but people are saved, have always been a stumbling block to many. But in our cultural moment, these claims are becoming anathema to more and more people, including many believers who struggle to reconcile what seem to be the kind and gracious perspectives of the culture with what sound like sometimes the uncaring claims of the gospel. But anyway, opposition from the world, including opposition from the religious establishment, doesn't need to shock us or alarm us. Opposition to the person and word of God has been going on ever since the garden, ever since the rebellion. There has been opposition to the Lord, opposition to his word, and opposition to people who cling to that word. But those of us who are in Christ and those in whom Christ lives have the resources in Christ to live a life of peace in the midst of the storm without retreating, as is sometimes our desire to a man-made fortress or for supposed safety. 
Well, as Jordan recounted, Paul had great courage in the face of that danger and never retreated. The undergirding that courage was peace, the shalom of God, his utter confidence and trust in the one who met him on the road to Damascus allowed Paul to be at rest in the worst of situations. And I, I hope that this lesson will minister my heart and your heart this morning during these times and in this place in which we live. Let's pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, as we come to this, we come to you as the living one, the one who's seated on the throne, the one who created everything. Everything that came into being came into being through you. You are the master of it all, and yet you are also the one who is so near and personal to us that you have taken up residence in our very own hearts. So, Lord, we come to you. We ask you, Lord, we know we've read We know that you are our peace. You personally are. And we just ask you this morning to help us to find our, to make that real in our lives a little bit and help us to think about how to make it more real in the coming days. Amen. Well, we're picking up again in Acts 23, uh, chapter uh, verse 12, if you want to read along. Uh, This is what it says. I'm reading from the ESV. The next day, this is the next day after Lysias had taken Paul, put him back into protective custody. The next day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And those 40 went to the chief priests and the elders, that's the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until Paul, until we've killed Paul. Now, you, therefore, along with the council, the Sanhedrin, give notice to Lysias, the tribune, to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him when he comes near. Now, I just want to pause for a minute before we go on. Um, we read these stories. I read them. You know, just read them. You've, if you've read them a few times, you kind of blow through. Think about this for a minute. Have you, can you imagine this kind of a thing in your own life? Forty men have said, we're not going to eat another bite until you're dead. You know, how, just a little per, let that percolate for a second. You know, how, how, how would that hit you? I wouldn't be happy to know that was going on. Uh, That's never happened in my life, and I praise God that it hasn't. But you know, there are many of our brothers and sisters all over the world for whom life, you know, imprisonment, suffering, death is a real deal for the cause of Christ. That is happening right now. doesn't happen here, so I read these stories and I go, whoa, I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. Well, it does. I thank God this story is so extreme and explicit because if Paul can find peace in this, it might help me to find peace in my less difficult circumstances or or at least believe that peace can be found in any kind of circumstance. Well, let's go on. The next verse. So the son of Paul's sister, so Paul's nephew, heard about this ambush and he went and entered the barracks where Paul was being held and told Paul about it. Again, let's stop and think about it. So Paul is sitting there. He's already, he knows these guys are all worked up, and he knows that they don't like him. And his nephew shows up and tells him the whole story. There are 40 men who are not going to eat. They're not going to sleep until you're dead. 
and they've got a plan to make it happen. Again, how would we react? Um, many of us have faced various kinds of really difficult news about ourselves and our loved ones, perhaps a life-threatening illness, uh, whether personally or in life of a loved one. This past year during the pandemic, this was like a cultural reality. I mean, there were people who were terrified because of the news of constant people dying. You know, people dying in America, people dying all over the world. People were, a lot of people were just plain terrified. How, how did how did you react to that? Or how have you reacted when you, if you have someone in your own home that, that has a life-threatening illness that, that threatens to cut their life short? I mean, those things are, they're real. How do you react? Do you react with fear? Do you react with confidence in God, anxiety, peace, a big mishmash of all of it? You know, think about that. And then think about Paul sitting there in this, it's not a cell, but he's at the garrison. He hears this news that these guys, have not gonna, they're not going to eat another bite until he's dead. Um, the o- emotional reaction in each of us is going to differ, partly by virtue of our, our personalities, but it's, it, uh, you know, some of us are going to be angry and fight. Others are going to be cowering. I mean, others are going to be you know, finding peace. Um, but most of us tend to launch in some direction toward trying to work the problem. I've got to figure out how to deal with this. If it's somebody trying to kill me, I'm going to try to make myself scarce. If it's somebody who's, you know, I'm really sick or my, my loved one is sick, I'm going to be looking for ways to try to, to deal with it, you know, maybe find a cure, all those kinds of things. Some of us might start by offering the problem to God and asking for his provision, but for most of us, it's really common to be rattled, it's normal, and to be very focused on the crisis, and it can be hard to find the Lord Jesus as our peace in those circumstances. Well, let's see what Paul did, at least as much as Luke tells us. So Paul hears this from his nephew, and he calls one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. Now, Luke doesn't say anything about Paul making an appeal to the Roman tribune. He simply sent his nephew to give them the report. He doesn't expressly tell us Paul's frame of mind, but the entirety of chapters 20 through 26 give us a clear indication that his focus was on anything but potential danger. He just wasn't that focused on it. He is mindful of the danger. He knew it was there. He expected it. Here's what he, we read a couple of weeks ago in Acts 20, verse 23. He This is what Paul said to the elders in Ephesus as he was going to Jerusalem. Look, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. I don't know what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. This is a guy who, he just wasn't put off by that. He just knew it was going to be there. He seemed to be resting serenely in something that most of us might struggle to try to find. He rested in this person the presence, the purpose, and the provision of God in Christ. And it isn't that just that he trusted God to take care of him because God loves him. On the contrary, he fully expected to suffer and, frankly, eventually die for the cause of Christ. He knew that was down the road somewhere. He doesn't have this sort of sense of false confidence. Nothing's bad. Everything's going to be okay. Just trust God. Everything's going to work out. No, he trusted that God would do what God wanted to get done. 
And what happened to him wasn't the point. He trusted that God would get done what God wanted to get done, and that was enough for him. And then he has this apparent disregard for his own personal safety and the danger from human enemies. So he's got these human enemies. Now, if I have human enemies, like I said, some of us might fight. Some of us might just run. Some of us might marshal some other set of troops. Like, help me. I got I to gotta fight this thing off. He knew of the determination, the zealousness of these 40 people, these 40 men. But he knew that his enemies weren't flesh and blood. He was not focused on what human beings were doing. That wasn't his deal. Uh, his enemies, Paul knew, we read in his letters, he knew were the powers and principalities and the forces of evil in the heavenly realms, not just on the earth. And he knew those powers were never any match for God. And they never will be. They were defeated and shamed at the cross. And again, I mentioned this. He had this disregard for his personal safety. In Acts 20, in that talk to the the leaders of the Ephesians church, as he was going to Jerusalem, he went on to say, I don't, I don't account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And as he was getting closer to Jerusalem in Acts 21, he was warned by a man named Agabus, a prophet, not to continue. He proclaimed, rather matter-of-factly, look, I'm ready to not only be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a man utterly captured by Jesus as his peace. He is living in some kind of a shalom that some of us taste sometimes, but it just carried him. He was so confident in the person and the person, the person and the purposes of God. Well, the rest of the passage, we're not going to read. I'll summarize it for you. The centurion got that news. He took Paul's nephew to the tribune, uh, Claudius Lysias, and told him that Paul had asked him to bring the young man to give the report. Lysias took Paul's nephew aside, got the report, told him, don't tell anybody about this, and don't tell anybody you told me. Uh, And then at 9 o'clock in the evening, he sent Paul to Caesarea under the uh, guard of hundreds of foot soldiers, spearmen, and mounted horsemen, along with a letter introducing Paul to Felix the governor. And Felix ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace in Caesarea, which is this city way up up the coast from, uh, on the coast north of Jerusalem. By the way, he would stay imprisoned in that garrison for the next two years. We'll hear about that in coming weeks. Well, let's talk about this piece. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he said to his disciples, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And you know what his first words are to the disciples after he comes out of the grave as recorded in John in John 20? 
his first words are, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If we think back to what he said the night he was betrayed, he said, I'm going to, the Holy Spirit's going to be sent and I am now bringing him. Paul did more than memorize these words. He lived with this indwelling of spirit of Christ and Jesus Christ himself was Paul's peace. It's no wonder that he began every single letter that he wrote to one of the churches with these words or a variation on these words. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This wasn't just a throwaway line, you know, like we just say, you know, Dear so-and-so, how you doing? Wait, I'm, this, is like, this is like where he starts because it's foundational in his life. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If Paul is an example of the life of peace in Christ, what and how can we learn from him? How do you get and keep this peace? Is it just one more attribute of Paul that, you know, well, that's Paul. You know, I can't be like Paul. I mean, Paul's like Paul. You know, I, I, it's not for me. Or, or is it something that's, that's for us? Is it attainable? And if it is, how? Now, I am not going to be suggesting that, you know, we just say, peace out, brother. Peace out, sister. Don't worry. Be happy. Everything will work out. That isn't the point. Paul writes, in fact, in First Thessalonians, he's talking about the return of the Lord his bodily return. And he actually says, look, the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there is peace and security, sudden destruction will come on them like, and they won't even know where it came from. And it'll hit them like labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So this is not a man-made, let's gin it up and feel peaceful kind of a deal. This is not, let's try to just ignore everything. We can handle this. Don't worry, be happy. True peace, true shalom. Shalom. You go, go read Hebrews four, meditate on it. It's available to all who are in Christ Jesus. There's a Sabbath rest that belongs to us right now. It's not an attribute. It's not even just a feeling. It's a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. It is the person of Jesus Christ who was Paul's peace. And it is the person of Jesus Christ who is our peace. Now, Paul cultivated this ongoing relationship with the one who called him. He wasn't perfect at this. Paul wasn't like, you know, like didn't ever make a mistake. And it wasn't like he never got jolted. He's a human. You and I are like Paul. We are humans who have been saved by grace and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The point isn't perfect living it is consistent dependence it's saying to god quite frankly if you don't have this neither do i in fact the psalm that we sang psalm three is this crying out just like deliver me if you don't have this i i you know i don't have it i can't i can't do it if you're not doing it that linda and i were in california recently we had friends with we had friends with good lunch we had lunch with some really good friends uh, a couple of weeks ago that we've known for 45, 50 years. And, and one of them was saying that he's lately been saying to the Lord, it's your job to take care of us. 
Lord, it's, it's your job. It's not my job. It is your job. You're the shepherd. We're the sheep. It's your job. So you've got to take care of us. And uh, I, I, I love that, you know, but, and it reminded me of Moses. There's this story in Exodus 33. You know, in Exodus, it's the story of the, they've come out of Egypt and they're on their way to the land and they're, they hang around in the wilderness for a long time. But the Lord, I'll read a little bit, just a few, few of the, the lines. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will send an angel before you, but I will not go up with you. Moses said, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You say to me, bring up these people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Don't forget, this nation is your people. The Lord called them, told Moses, <laughs> those people that you brought up, and Moses turned around and said, no, 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 these are your people. If your presence will not go with me, don't send us. The Lord said, I will do what you have spoken. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. You know, at the end of Matthew's gospel, the Lord says, the Lord Jesus, who's leaving, he has died, he's resurrected, and, uh, and, and now he's leaving again. He says, look, I, I will be with you to the end of the age. He is the God of the presence. He is here. He is fully here right now, just as much as he was with Moses and Israel as they were going through Actually, in some ways, far more than that. They could see the presence of the Lord in the cloud and the pillar of fire. We actually have the indwelling life of God, which is something they did not even have. So how do we cultivate this relationship with our ever-present Lord, our ever-present Savior, our friend, our lover, so that we can actually walk through the craziest of times experiencing present shalom? the peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the first answer that comes to my mind, and it may be yours to yours as well, is simply to, ha- to spend time set aside simply to be in his presence. This may be a practice that you already have in some way, uh, whether you call it a quiet time or a meditation or a spiritual discipline, but the time that we spend with the Lord just in his presence will have an increasing impact on our time every day in the world, rubbing shoulders with believers and non-believers alike. And we see that pattern practiced by the Lord Jesus throughout the Gospels. He's frequently got away from everybody, got away from the 12, got away from everywhere, just to go spend time in the presence of his Father. And it certainly marked the lives of the apostles Here's something wonderful. This, this quiet activity requires no intellectual sophistication. This is not about being smart or knowing a lot. It's actually, this habit is equally available to the very gifted and the less gifted, to the highly educated and the not so, and the less educated. In fact, it actually requires a simplicity of heart and mind. I've lately been helped by a book published in 1964 that I only was recently introduced to. Linda tells me it was kind of a a big deal back uh, in the early days of her Christian life. But a friend uh, introduced it to me. It's called The Green Letters by 
Miles Stanford. And here's a bit from chapter 4, page 25 of that book. God has a natural law in force to the effect that we are conformed to that which we center, on which we center our interest and love. There's a natural law in force to the effect that we are conformed to that on which we center our interest and love. And then he quotes a man named Norman Doughty, who writes, if I'm to be like him, then God in his grace must do it. And the sooner I come to recognize it, the sooner I will be delivered from another form of bondage, which is running around trying to find peace. Throw down every endeavor and say, I can't do it. The more I try, the farther I get from his likeness. Well, what shall I do? Oh, the Holy Spirit says, you cannot do it. Just withdraw. Come out of it. You've been in the arena. You've been endeavoring. You are a failure. Come out and sit down. And as you sit there, behold him. Look at him. Don't be try to be like him. Just look at him. Just be occupied with him. Forget about trying to be like him. Instead of that, letting that fill your mind and heart, let him fill it. Just behold him. Look upon him through the word. Come to the word for one purpose, and that is to meet the Lord. Not to get your mind crammed full of things about the sacred word, but to come and meet the Lord. Make it to be a source, not of biblical scholarship, but of fellowship with Christ. Behold the Lord. Well, a practice that's been extremely helpful to me for 50 years has been praying out loud through a passage of scripture, sometimes a hymn. In either case, I convert what I'm reading into a first-person dialogue with the Lord Jesus, my Lord, my Savior, my lover. As Stanford wrote, meeting the Lord personally in and through the text. It's a, it, it's a very present experiential encounter. It's not just a study of his attributes. It's sitting in his presence and adoring him, beholding him, looking at him, worshiping him, telling him that I love him and letting him tell me that he loves me, enjoying his great love for me. Look, there are times when I study scripture for content, including a fuller understanding of the attributes, the character, the law, and the actions of God and of his Christ. But that's not what I'm talking about here. This is a time of just sitting quietly. I try to do this before I spend time doing those other things. To set aside a focus on theology, even on righteous living. That's not the point. The point is simply to sit in his presence and adore him and let him minister to my heart. It reminds me of that story in Luke 10 of Mary and Martha. Martha's working hard in the kitchen, and Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. Mary's effort, Martha's efforts were not without value. But the Lord remarked that Mary chose the better part. Well, Paul's shalom peace in the midst of trial, imprisonment, and under threat of death came did not come from an intellectual understanding of God and his purposes. There are times when just knowing the truth is all you can cling to, and you go to something like Psalm 3, and you just pray it as a matter of faith. So it is good to know that God is present, and he's available, and he's an ever-present help in time of trouble. That's a good thing to know and to cling to. But it was more than that. For Paul, he had entered into the shalom. He understood what the writer of Hebrews was talking about in chapter 4.
And it didn't come from any sense of self-worth or self-confidence or having made it. He's finally good enough at being a Christian that he's at peace. You know, I'm, I'm finally, I've figured it out enough that when bad things happen, I'm okay. He had this overwhelming sense of shalom in the midst of these troubles. It, it came from knowing the God who lived inside of him and from resting in the God within who Paul found his life and being in. It was living in the reality of the word Jesus promised to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And yet a little while, and the world won't see me anymore, but you will see me. And because I live, you will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. So Paul's peace came from knowing the indwelling Christ. It also came from beholding the Lamb of God who sits and reigns as king of everything on the throne in the heavenly realms. This uncreated one who is completely other than us and exalted above everything and yet at the same time is completely personal, intimate, and literally living inside of us. Behold the Lord and be changed by the beholding. Well, Jordan's encouragement last week to start small in Acts of Courage applies here too. If this is new to you, try spending five or ten minutes for several mornings just sitting quietly in the Lord's presence, letting a passage of Scripture lead you into telling the Lord that you love Him, that He's wonderful, that He's exalted that he's amazing, that there's no one like him. Whatever words of love and adoration that the Holy Spirit puts in your heart to say to your Lord, your Savior, your friend, your lover, Jesus, and sit quietly and long enough to let him whisper words of love to you, words of peace. I'm going to close with this encouraging word. It's encouraging to me from Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. Whenever one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's keep turning to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, again, we just praise you. We exalt you as the, the risen Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, of the world, and now sits exalted on a throne and also lives within us. Lord, you are a wonder. There is no one like you. Help us to Keep learning to just sit in your presence, to let you minister peace to us in a way that shapes us, changes us, conforms us to your image, and prepares us to live in a world that's not peaceful, in a world that constantly violates shalom and goes against it. Lord, help us to daily look at you, behold you, love you, 
worship you and to receive all that you have for us in return. In your name, Lord. Amen. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Please take and eat. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace. Thank you that it truly passes our understanding. Uh, Please open our, our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to understand the goodness that you have for us and to rest in it. Amen.